don't remember, Lamentations is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. That should help you find it as you maybe locate some of those larger books and flip to Lamentations there in the middle. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. We're continuing our series that started on Sunday nights and was interrupted in many ways by COVID. And Lord willing, we're finishing the book of Lamentations today. So chapter 5, we're reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 22. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our nets. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Syria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread, the peril of our lives, because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger on the load of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has, has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let's pray together. O Lord, we thank you for your word and Though this situation is far removed from us, we pray that you would help us to understand it, help it to relate to our situation, show us Christ in it. We pray that you'd be glorified in the preaching of your word, in Christ's name, amen. I want to remind you that, uh, just a little review of what's going on in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a communal or national lament. It's a lament not for one event in one person's life, but for all of the community. Uh, in many ways, uh, it's similar to what we saw happen with 9-11 here in the United States, where there would be um, many people who would write poems or songs about the devastation that took place there, lamenting, crying out because of what happened. And we can understand as well that our sin as a nation may one day, maybe even now, lead us to such lament. We may suffer in a similar way. But this is for the nation. In the historical background, we could find in 2 Kings 25, 1 through 21. There we read about in 587 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. The city walls were torn down. 
The palace and all the great houses were burned. Even the temple was plundered and burned. And all but the poorest of the inhabitants were carried off into exile. And the book of Lamentation records the utter despair uh, that Judah felt at this momentous time. It expresses the pain at the realization that it was ultimately God who had done this and not Babylon that had brought this on them. God was responsible. And Lamentations is anonymous. There's no uh, byline here with the book, but it's generally attributed to Jeremiah. Uh, it fits nicely with his book and seems to be in a style that he wrote and seems likely that he was the one who wrote it. And it would have been written during the 70 years of exile in Babylon, likely in the early period of those 70 years. So somewhat early on, In the 70 years, this book was written. And the purpose is to acknowledge God's judgment against Jerusalem and move God, if we can use such language, to intercede for and restore his people. It's crying out to God to restore what had been lost. And then secondly, a purpose is to produce hope in God. For the people in exile, those far off from their homeland, to encourage them to hope in God. We talked a little bit about this, or maybe a lot about this along the way, but I argued that the book is structured as a chiasm. And what that means is that the focal point of the whole book is in the center of the book. There's five chapters, and uh, they're mostly all in acrostics of 22 verses or multiples of 22. Uh, this one's, chapter five's not an acrostic. There's a reason probably for that. People have argued that as you get to chapter five, the structure of acrostic is lost to symbolize the chaos that's going on in the land. But either way, we see the center of the book as the main point, chapter 2 and chapter 4 relating, chapter 1 and chapter 5 relating to one another. But the, it's way different than how we write in English. We almost always finish with the point at the end, right? We, we build to the point. And here we see a crescendo, and then it goes back down again afterwards. And so chapter 3 is the center of the book. And in chapter 3, we read in verses 22 through 24, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So the middle of this uh, book about lamentation of the destruction of Jerusalem is hope. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so, again, a point and emphasis of the book is to encourage us to hope in God in the midst of calamity and uh, suffering, lamentation, hardship. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Christ of Wisdom, argues that the message of the book, he says four points that I've used throughout the study. He says, number one, calamity has come. Number two, sin has caused it. Three, God has ordered it or ordained it. And fourth, yet there's hope. And so I want to, as we finish the book, go back to that structure and say, how do we see those things in this last chapter And then how does that apply to us? So first, to see that calamity has come. That is pretty easy to demonstrate from this chapter. Uh, Almost every verse deals with something along those lines. I'm going to run through this very quickly. I'll try not to go back and reread all the things, just summarize what we see. Verse 2, their land and inheritance has been lost. In Leviticus 20, 24, it says, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, And I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the promised land that God had given to them. 
And now we see in verse 2 that they've lost it. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. So there's questions even here. God's given the promised land to be our inheritance forever. Now we've lost it. What does that mean in terms of our relationship with God and the covenant? What's going on here? They've lost the promised land that God has given to them. Secondly, they have lost husbands, fathers, parents. We see in verse 3, there are orphans, widows in the land, maybe even symbolizing protection and care that they would have had is gone now. Families are destroyed, separated. Many have died. Verse 4, we see that they have to buy water and bread. And since they're occupied by our foreign country, it seems to be implied even, if you're going to get water, you don't go very far for water, do you? And so at least while they were in the land, they were probably buying water from their own wells. Now maybe in Babylon, something similar, they're having to pay for water. I find that interesting in a society where we buy bottled water, even though we have it on tap, right? We still buy bottled water that this is considered one of the evidences of how bad things are. They have to go buy their water. But if you understand from a well, normally you could draw for free. Now you have to buy it. I assume the same is true for wood. You could collect it for free, but now they're having to buy the wood. And a related point in verse 9 is that they risk their lives in seeking out food. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. So as they go searching for food, there are people who are there seeking to kill them. There's no longer that protection, maybe because of the government being destroyed uh, or the distance they're having to travel, but they have to put their life on the line to warm their family or to heat their food. In verse 5, it says, it shows that they are oppressed and pursued. Uh, it speaks of the neck. Our pursuers are at our nets. We are weary. We are given no rest. And that's difficult for us to understand that idiom. Uh, it's hypothesized that that probably means You've seen uh, the idea that a conquered people, the, the conqueror will put his shoe on the neck of the person to show subjugation. I've defeated you. I've conquered you. You've got no power. It may be something like that. It may be the way that they handled them. But either way, they're being pursued. They're being oppressed, mistreated. And they're given no rest and weary. They're weary from being pursued. We see in verse 6, they are forced to seek help from foreign enemies. This is probably even to get food. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Syria to get bread enough. And so uh, Egypt, we're reading in the book of Exodus how the Israelites left Egypt. And now they're having to turn back to Egypt and seek help from Egypt. And Assyria. You may remember that Assyria is the nation that conquered the kingdom of Israel. And so Judah's all that left. Assyria's destroyed all their maybe extended family. And now we're going to them begging them for bread, going to our enemies and asking for help. Again, that may be one of the problems of why uh, they're in danger in the wilderness because they're having to travel such distances to get food. They have been reduced to a position lower than a slave, as we see in verse 8. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. So even the slaves are in a higher position. Babylonian slaves are our masters. We're in worse position than them. There's no help, no deliverance. A related point in verse 13, even the strongest, the young men, are compelled to grind at the mill. That would be a job uh, that would normally be below them or something that they would not be engaged in. 
uh, maybe a job for slaves, and then boys stagger under loads of wood. That's a job for a beast of burden. This is something a, a mule might do or a donkey. And they're making the young men, the men of vigor, the men of strength to carry around the wood until they're exhausted. They stagger under it. Uh, verse 10 is a little difficult. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. How does famine cause the skin to be hot? I kind of summarized this and said their starvation is showing physical effects. I'm not quite sure what those physical effects may be. It, it may be that because of lack of food and starvation, their skin has gotten dry and cracking, patched. Um, it may be that uh, there's fever, inflammation from malnourishment, but for some reason they're feeling the heat on their skin. Or it's used as an expression of just how bad off they are in, the, in famine. Verse 11 speaks of the women being raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. This would imply all throughout the land this is going on. This is what the Babylonians have done to them. The leaders are ridiculed and disrespected in verse 12. They're hung up by their hands, apparently to death. They hang there until they die. No respect is shown to the elders. Uh, this points to a breakdown in government and leadership. The structure of society has, has been demolished. It's gone. And so along with that, normal life has ceased, as we see in verse 14. And everyone is displaced. The old man, the old men have left the city gate. They would normally, the elders would meet at the gate to decide matters. It'd be, basically be like a courtroom. You could come there and talk to them. They'll discuss politics. They'll decide court issues. They're gone there. There's nowhere to go with your problems. There's no help being offered. Those men in those positions are gone. But it also says the young men have left their music. So everything about normal life is gone. Whatever used to be normal in life is no longer happening. And so with that, we see really verses 15 through 17 point to the fact that life for them is full of sadness and mourning. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. And so we see joy is gone. Where they once used to dance in joy, now all they have is mourning. There's no cause for joy for them. Verse 16 said, the crown has fallen. This could be a literal expression because we see back in chapter 4, verse 20, we know that the king has been carried off into exile. So the king is gone. Literally, their crown has fallen. But I think there's probably much more that's intended. Their glory is gone. What they used to boast in, it's fallen from their head. They have nothing to be proud of or rejoice in anymore. Even to the point that it says their heart has become sick and their eyes grow dim. Likely from sorrow, maybe from crying, for staying up late at night, for weeping. But their heart is sick, their eyes dim. In verse 18, we see Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is described as desolate and that jackals prowl over it. Wild animals inhabit it. Uh, jackals are animals that most of the time avoid humans. They don't like to be around people. And so for jackals to be prowling around the city even highlights further the desolation of Jerusalem. There's no one there. There's no people there. So now the animals have taken over. And then in verse 20, we see an expression of how they feel forgotten by God. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? And so we get an understanding of the calamity that has come. In each chapter, we've seen a bit of this. 
Now I want to look at how sin has caused it. Again, we've seen this throughout the book, but again here in chapter 5. Verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Now, if we're not careful, verse 7 can sound like an excuse. It can sound like they're saying, we're innocent, it's our father's fault. I'm not responsible, we're getting the results of their iniquities. I don't think that's the case, as we're going to see later Jeremiah prays for their sin, all of their sin. I think what's being or what's being pointed to here is the idea that it's a generational problem. It's a continual problem. Generation after generation after generation has sinned against God, and now they're facing the consequences of that. I even think where it says we bear their iniquities, um, it may imply that we sin in ways like they did, maybe even in worse ways. Let me read a parallel passage from Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. God speaking to Jeremiah, and when you tell these people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of the land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. So there we see prophetically what's coming and why it's coming. And, and God says to Jeremiah, when the people say, what iniquity have we done? What have we done? We haven't done anything wrong. Tell them about what their fathers have done. And then he says, point out to them, and you've done worse. You've inherited their sin. You've lived out their sin, and you've added more to it, including idolatry. And so what does God do? Much like the book of Romans, God gives them over to their idolatry. You worship false gods. Therefore, I'll send you into a foreign land where you'll... Worship false gods. And again, just to point to the fact that this isn't a claim of innocence. Look at verse 16. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So there's an acknowledgement of their sin corporately. We have sinned. And even woe to us. I've said before, but woe is a pronouncement of punishment. And so Jeremiah is acknowledging punishment is deserved. Woe to us. Judge us for what has happened. But I would acknowledge as well with both of these, I think we see an expression of repentance. They're acknowledging that we have sinned, we're receiving the just punishment, and now they're crying out to God for help. Thirdly, God ordained it. Even in all this, God continues to reign. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. They've lost their king. They've been carried in exile, but God's still on the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still in control of all this. I think of maybe the church in America over the last two and a half years with everything that happened with COVID. And I think in a much less worse situation, I think many in the church forgot this. That God's still sovereign. That God still reigns. That no matter what, he's in control. And so that ought to encourage us. If God has ordained it, if God's sovereign over this, where do we go for hope? 
where our hope remains in the Lord. Look at verse 21. He alone can restore us. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. And so that really moves us to our last point. Yet there's hope. And we see a bit of that hope there. God can restore us, which is why Jeremiah cries out to God, restore us. I would point out to you as well, maybe you guys noticed this, but this entire chapter is prayer. We see verse 1 and verses 21 and 22, the beginning and the end of the chapter are clearly prayer and everything in between. Look at verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And from there on out, we see he's recounting the situation, but he's speaking to God. It's much like Augustine's confessions. This is our peeking into Jeremiah's prayer. And he's praying for the people corporately. We, our, we see those plural pronouns. He's praying for all the people. To God, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. And if you look at verse 21 and 22, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So again, this whole section is one prayer, saturated, beginning, ending, with addressing God, but throughout it all, a prayer to God. And as I said, it's a communal prayer. He's praying for all the people. Because God reigns, as we saw in verse 19, we can cry out to him. We can pray to God because he's still sovereign. He's still in control. And so I see here Jeremiah responding the way all of us ought to respond in such situations. When we face suffering, what should we do? Here's what James 5.13 says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's praying to God. He's crying out to God in light of this. Maybe another example, Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Creator is the one who is our help. Where do we go in suffering? We must go to the Lord. And so, too, we're encouraged that we must pray in times of calamity. Matthew Henry says, As it is a great comfort to us, so it ought to be a sufficient one in our troubles that God sees and considers and remembers all that has come upon us. And in our prayers, we need only to recommend our case to his gracious and compassionate consideration. That really leads to what we see in verse 1 where it says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Has God forgotten? Has the omniscient God forgotten what's taking place? No. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. God, God, you seem to have forgotten this. He's bringing it before the Lord. He's placing it right in front of him to say, Lord, we're desperate. We need your help. I would even say it may seem to him and to others that have been carried in that style that God has forgotten them. I think in verse 22, I want to be careful because I, I don't believe Jeremiah believes this, but the people are probably struggling with this question. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So by the time he's writing this, they're in exile. They've been there some time, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe 30 years. There's no sight of restoration. Has God utterly rejected us? What would it mean for God to utterly reject them? This is God's covenant people. If he utterly rejects them, they're cut off. He's done with them. There will be no salvation. There will be no returning to the land. There will be no more communion with God. There will be no Messiah. 
promised since the fall. He's going to come from this line. But if you've utterly rejected us, there's no hope even of a Messiah. Will Christ even come? Have you rejected? Are you still angry with us after decades? And so, again, I think a little bit rhetorical questions, but he's probably addressing the very questions that people uh, there in Babylon, the, uh, those from Judah, are actually asking. Seventy years is a long time to wait. Just imagine for any of you in this room, 70 years of exile, just imagine, I said to you, look, in 70 years I'm going to give you something. If you'll just wait for it, 70 years. Most of us are never going to see it. Maybe a few of you in this room, I won't make it probably, nope, won't make it that long. So I won't be here to give it to you. It's a gen- One generation is going to pass away there never knowing the land, never knowing Zion, never knowing Jerusalem. Never worshiping at the temple. So it's a long time to break, uh, to wait. But we understand God will not break his covenant. God's covenant promises cannot and will not be broken. There will be a remnant who will remain faithful to God in Babylon and who will eventually be restored, as we saw in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we see in verse 21, it's God who can restore and renew them. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Again, our hope is in the Lord. After 70 years, he does renew their days as of old, like in verse 21. Renew our days as of old. He restores them to the land and renews the days. And so God is faithful. So how does this apply to us? As we close out this book, what does it mean for us? I want to encourage you, first of all, They lost the promised land, but they didn't lose the promised land. God restored them to it. God's covenant promises remain faithful. God is faithful. We can trust them. In fact, we talked about already that Genesis, I'm sorry, um, the center of the book here, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. The God we serve is faithful. And so we too can trust his promises. And so one application of that may be, though we may lose anything, everything in life, even our very life, we cannot lose our heavenly inheritance. God has promised us that when we die, we will be in his presence forever. He's promised us that Christ is returning. There will be a new earth and a new heavens. No weapon formed against us can take that away from us. Nothing that we face, no trial, no suffering could ever take that away. Think about to verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Every earthly crown will fall from our head. Everything that we prize, everything that we are so proud of, we one day will lose, either by our death or sometime long before. The things that we grasp to, the things we cling to in this life have no lasting value. Moth and rust and thief will break in and steal and kill and destroy. What hope is there for us? Well, our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is in the Lord. Matthew Henry says, It is the happiness of all God's spiritual Israel that the heavenly Canaan is an inheritance that cannot be seized from them, that shall never be turned over to strangers. We're never going to lose our heavenly inheritance. 
First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Even in the midst of suffering, a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have great hope. Why? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has been brought back to life. We can trust that one day we will be given new life. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means receiving an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who's keeping it? God is. God's protecting your inheritance. It cannot be, uh, it's imperishable. It cannot be defiled. It will not fade. What happened to Zion will never happen to our heavenly inheritance. And that ought to be of great encouragement to us. And so Paul, or we can say with Paul, that we can count all the things of this world, all that we may lose in this life is rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where our hope is found, in knowing Christ. Secondly, Christ has taken upon himself our calamity. Suffering and hardship should drive us to the cross. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin and the suffering and the calamity that we deserve. The eternal death that we deserve, Christ has borne for us. And so that ought to encourage us that we can go to Christ for help. We go to him for forgiveness of sins. And just as we know that we will never lose that heavenly inheritance, we can know as well that we will never be utterly forsaken because of Christ. I'll go back to 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 5. Who, um, who, speaking of us, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not just inheritance that's being guarded. It's us because there's a salvation that awaits us that we have not yet realized. The consummation of the salvation that Christ has bought for us still awaits us. And it cannot be taken away. So just as our inheritance cannot be taken away, neither can our salvation. Neither can we ever be utterly forsaken because of Christ. Thirdly, this ought to encourage us to confess our sin, individually and corporately. My guess is that we rarely ever do this corporately. We can know that we can come to our gracious Lord, who is full of steadfast love, as we saw in chapter 3. But do we grieve over the state of the church or our nation Do we cry out in prayer to God? Lord, forgive us as a nation. Forgive us as a church. We're encouraged here that that's what we do. That's what we can do. We are to pray. And God hears and answers those prayers. Fourthly, the problem in Judah was a relational problem. It wasn't just a sin problem. Oftentimes we focus upon sin. But look at verse 21. Restore us to yourself. Restore us to yourself. Not restore our fortunes. Not restore our house. Not even restore the temple. Not foremost restore the walls of Jerusalem. Not restore my car or my bank account. Restore us to yourself. And so again, I think this points to a relational problem. Foremost, we need to be restored to the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord is of foremost importance. And so they're ultimately leaving the land not 
primarily because of sin, but because they've neglected the Lord. They've gone after foreign gods, which is a sin, but they've done so because they've neglected the Lord who should have been their first love. So are you distant from God? Do you feel a distance between you and God? James 4, 8 through 10 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, which points to the fact that God never is pulling away from us. It's because of our pulling away from him, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In Jeremiah 29, 13 through 14, we read, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here Jeremiah prophetically, God speaking through Jeremiah, is telling the people, Though you're going into exile, you will be restored to the land. When will that happen? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where you've been driven. And so I think we're encouraged as well. Seek the Lord with all your heart. I want to be careful, even as uh, Pastor Thompson is preaching through the book of Job, not all suffering is a direct result of sin. Sometimes we don't know the reason why God's bringing upon us what he's doing. But I also want to be careful to say that doesn't mean that sometimes our suffering is a result of sin. It is sometimes. And so when we find ourselves in suffering, what ought we to do? Well, we should confess our sins. And I think we need to seek out relationship with God. Ask yourself, have we wandered from God? Have we neglected our times in communion with God? We should seek that out and restore it. And then finally... As I close this chapter and as I close the book, I want to encourage you by the central theme of the book. Even when life seems to be falling completely apart, here's God's word to you. The focus point, I think, of the whole book, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. There will be days when it seems like his mercy has ceased. His steadfast love has ceased. But what it tells us is they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We should be encouraged in the midst of suffering, hardship, calamity, to go to God, to find hope in him, for him to be our portion, not the things of this world, but for God to be our portion. And as we consider this fact, the steadfast of the love Love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Where do we know this most completely? Where have we known that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and His mercies never come to an end? I think the primary place that God has demonstrated this to us is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in just a few minutes, we're going to take of the Lord's table. As we do so, we ought to see this as a moment to celebrate that Christ has demonstrated to us the steadfast love of the Lord, His mercy that never fades. Even when we sin, even when we're far off from God, He's still merciful. Every morning, new mercy. Every morning, new mercy. That steadfast love never ceases because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to God in prayer in His name.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have, Lord, been for us. Or Through Christ, You have paid the price for our sins. You have reconciled us to Yourself. You have restored the relationship that we have broken through our sin. And Lord, we pray that our trust, our hope would be in You, in Your steadfast love and mercy that never ceases, never ends, is new every morning. And Lord, as we think of those things, we pray that we think upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has secured that for us. May we delight in these truths in his name. Amen. Before we come to the table tonight, uh, let's sing the words of uh, 472. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. 472.
This time I'd like to invite the men who are serving at the table forward.